0: One of the reasons Ajahn Chah is (coughs) respected and remembered in Thailand so widely is because of his skill and success in training bhikkhus. Emphasized the important role of samana-sanya in the bhikkhu training, for each individual to develop the perception of being a samana, a renunciant, as he would say sometimes. One who is peaceful and harmless. One of the pictures of, images of his sangha that is very enduring is the image of the monks walking on Bindabhata. Uh, captured in the BBC's The Mindful Way. (coughs) You see uh, a whole line of bhikkhus walking barefoot in a restrained and composed manner. Some of them older, some of them very young, even young novices. But it's a picture that most people say, symbolizes the Sangha that grew up around Ajahn Chah. Whatever their backgrounds, each individual member of the Sangha may have come from a different background, (coughs) different levels of education. But in certain respects, they all achieve the same outward image, in a sense, at least learning the basics, how to wear the robes well, Ginkanon robes as well, not just robes Mm -hmm. offered from a factory and washed in detergent, but properly sewn and dyed Ginkanon robes carrying the arms bowl properly, receiving food from the laity, mindfully, not talking and not making a lot of fuss. There's a certain, <coughs> a certain look that is associated with Wat Pong and Ajahn Chah Sangha. <coughs> He used to refer to um, Venerable Sariputta's first meeting with a disciple of the Buddha, Venerable Asaji, regularly. The young man Upatissa, who, with his friend Goleta, made a pact to find (coughs) an enlightened teacher. As young men, they got fed up with the normal lifestyle they were leading. Wanted to pursue the spiritual path. So they were already learning meditation and practicing with their teacher. But they sensed this wasn't their true teacher. So when he saw Venerable Asaji walking through the village on arms round, Upatissa was immediately inspired and they had the sense this is somebody who was trained. You might say they had the right look, Venerable Asajjee had the right look, something about him, the way he walked was composed, mindful, not too fast, not too slow, with almost like a magnetic drawing power leading to want to inquire who he was, who his teacher was, and so on. (coughs) That's the drawing power of the true Dhamma. Asaji was enlightened, Arahant, and the mind of uh, an inner Arahant who's penetrated the Four Noble Truths, purified their mind from greed, hatred and delusion obviously has a very special, rare quality. And it's, Ajahn Chah used to say it's like a magnet. Anyone seeking true peace or seeking truth is drawn to that. So he asked him for a teaching. <clears throat> and out of humility, Asaji wouldn't give him a teaching. They asked for just a taste of what the Buddha taught. They gave him the teaching that the Tathāgata has has said that whatever arises from a cause, the Tathāgata has said what that cause is, all conditions arise from a cause. When that cause passes, subsides, then that condition will cease. That the Tathagata has said this and pointing to the very direct teachings that the Buddha gave about cause and effect everything arises from a cause suffering arises from a cause when you remove the cause suffering ceases <clears throat> and that was enough for Upatisa with the already in an inquiring mind to attain it became a stream winner, winner on the spot. But it's that sense of whatever your background, whatever level of Barami, accumulated good karma you feel you have there are certain things that we can all learn and practice very directly very quickly as we become bhikkhus and the thing about Ajahn Chah Sangha is <clears throat> it's a sort of continuity a standard of practice that is the norm for his disciples and You might say on the outside, you can't really tell who is (coughs) attained or enlightened, who not. Who has (coughs) samadhi or insight or who doesn't or what level or so on. Because they all maintain a certain standard, which is a very high standard, upholding the vinaya practice of basic restraint composure mindfulness in all postures in all situations careful use of the requisites and so on obviously if you live with bhikkhus you get to know them more over time what they do how they speak but there's a certain you might say trademark of the Ajahn Chah Sangha that when it's upheld <clears throat> it means everybody in that sangha has a certain bhārami. <clears throat> it's something that often grates with the world, goes against the way of the world, because the way of the world obviously is coming from ignorance and delusion. And unenlightened beings are constantly promoting a a deluded sense of self. And we express that sense of self through craving and attachment. Our culture encourages us to have views and opinions and hold knowledge on everything and to have passion for different things and so on. That's normal. So when you meet bhikkhus who practice mindfulness, equanimity, detachment, it's very different. Sometimes it leads to misunderstanding and the bhikkhus are considered cold, aloof. (coughs) But all they're really aloof from is defilement and the influence of the defilements. This is something Ajahn Chah emphasized over and over again, developing, you might say, the higher state of mind or the the mind that can transcend craving and attachment, that can see through the delusion of self towards the peace, the emptiness of the pure mind. So this is another part of the trademark character of his disciples. Not obviously giving in to craving in the way they speak or act. So being restrained in the the use of the requisites, being mindful around food and drink, being mindful around the use of the robes and other requisites that we take up (coughs) the Buddha emphasized also the one who's practicing for the end of suffering their aim is not to be allured by desirable sense objects, not to give in the, to the craving that arises for desirable sense objects, and not to give in to the aversion that arises when there's separation from those desirable sense objects and they're replaced with more painful, unpleasant things. And if you notice in our daily practice, <clears throat> much of the practice just comes down to this one point maintaining equanimity towards the different experiences and conditions that we encounter. Where does this craving come from? Well it comes originally from ignorance. Where does ignorance come from? Well it's conditioned by dukkha. We can uh, read the theoretical explanation of the arising of dukkha through studying the paticca-samubhādha this can help to give us a conceptual framework of how the Buddha taught and how we can apply and practice this. But you can't find an initial point where craving comes from in the sense it keeps being reinforced and brought up by the presence of ignorance. Craving leads on to upadana, attachment, bhava, becoming. (coughs) Leads on to birth, old age, sickness and death. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair and the whole mass of suffering, which conditions more ignorance again it's a cycle that we're constantly falling into it's constantly affecting us whether we realize it or not so Ajahn Chah was encouraging us to develop the tools the means by which to actually look at this cycle of how dukkha arises and skillfully bring an end to dukkha by actually interrupting it and changing the whole karmic process that leads to the arising of dukkha. So he's giving us the tools based on the practice of the Vinaya, Sila, restraint, the development of mindfulness in all postures and then contemplation. Over and over again, he would encourage to contemplate, meaning to turn your attention back onto your own mind in all the different situations you encounter and contemplate and see where craving is arising and how it's feeding upadana, clinging. As we know the Buddha compared cravings, and there's no river as long as the river of craving. It's just constantly <clears throat> affecting us as long as we, we don't stop to contemplate, establish mindfulness and contemplate. And this is where this sense of self starts to build up, through our sense contact and the feelings of pleasure and pain we experience, and then the craving that arises based on that. And Ajahn Buddhadasa used to say, it's <clears throat> it's like a dog constantly chasing you, trying to bite your butt. It's constantly yapping at you run, and you're running away from it. <coughs> when you give in to the craving, it's when the b- dog actually bites, it's got you. <coughs> and that's the equivalent of Upadana. Another way of looking at it is upadana is when you take ownership of the craving that arises and all the different aspects of that. So craving gives rise to upadana. Upadana is divided into for for ease of contemplation. It's divided into four different kinds: skama upadana, just the basic clinging to sense objects. <coughs> it's so obviously based on memory and <coughs> past sense objects that one has experienced. One has already has a sense of this is what I like, this is what I want, this is good for me. Based on that sense of self. There's dittu padana. And the views and beliefs based around them, those desirable sense objects what is good for me what I like how to achieve it how to get it padāna, belief in the practices and the ways that you can get hold of those desirable sense objects then padāna, the actual sense of self <coughs> the sense that there is a a person, a me, a mind, myself, who can have and own those sense objects, those pleasant experiences. Mostly in daily life, this is based around material things. We're living in a material realm. So we follow our, the desires that arise based on our eyes, seeing, forms, ears, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling and then memories and ideas based on that. But it could also extend to the fine material form, the immaterial form. It's not just limited to this sensual sphere that we live in, but it could be relating to the Brahma realms, the heaven realms, the Brahma realms, and all the beliefs and views that might form around that. <coughs> the belief that and there's an eternal heaven and that's the highest and that's what I want for me and all the pleasure all the bliss, the happiness that that could give me. Or it could go in the opposite way when we get caught up into the Upadana based on Vipavadana, you know, aversion and the desire for annihilation. When things go wrong and we get caught up into very negative ways of reacting, responding to our experience. The most extreme may be just desire for self-annihilation. The belief that that's the way, that's the best, that's the way out of all my problems, just kill myself. And on and on it goes. And Dandha is constantly feeding, clinging. We're constantly getting bitten by the dog. We're constantly taking ownership of our desires and beliefs and views. And if you reduce it down, it's this sense of self, the ego, the sense of me, mine, myself. You notice the skillfulness of both the Dhamma Vinaya, the way the Buddha taught, and Ajahn Chah in the modern area. <clears throat> you know, when you come into the monastery immediately you're setting aside much of the former conditioning that you've been used to like you shave your head, you put on robes you no longer have to present a sense of self to the world in the, in the normal way that you used to as a layperson you don't have to impress anyone you don't have to go around influencing other people. Mm-hmm. You immediately take on a new name. A Pali name as a bhikkhu, shaven head, robes. <clears throat> and you just sit according to vases and receive your binda according to vases rather than according to your status or skills or personality. We don't... You put the monk that everyone votes as the best monk up front and everyone else who's not very popular gets left behind. It's not done like that. We set aside the worldly way of judging people, the preferences and so on, and just go for a simple system. That already in itself is eroding away the ego, the sense of dhanha upadana. You're assigned a kuti. Maybe it's a kuti you like, maybe not. Maybe it's one you've been in before, maybe not. You wear robes that look exactly the same as other monks. We all eat the same food in the same way in a bowl and so on. All the time this is eroding away, this delusion of self. And obviously it's leading on to The practice of meditation on a deeper level. Supporting the practice of mindfulness. Because we live so simply, it's such an easy lifestyle. To maintain mindfulness is relatively straightforward. It's all about our own efforts. We can't complain too much about distraction because there isn't a lot. Obviously... uh, Accumulated desire for sense objects and distractions is still there. So it'll still be looking for its outlets. But our basic lifestyle is supportive of the practice of mindfulness. So it's quite possible to develop states of samadhi, states of calm, states of inner peace through the continuous practice of mindfulness in our daily life. And this is what will facilitate deepening that contemplation of the process of how suffering arises and how to transcend it, go beyond it. Previously as lay people, we probably found that craving is popping up all the time and you just don't know where it's coming from. You don't know what to do about it. So you kind of get used to it, you just accept it, you actually follow it, sometimes you can see the suffering it causes but because you just don't have enough refinement of awareness there's not a lot you can do about it so you just accept it and go along with it, sometimes even get in real trouble, you follow our craving to the point where we end up having conflicts with others, <coughs> following our greed. Sometimes we do the wrong thing and harm others, exploit others. Sometimes we just develop internal suffering us just for ourselves. But now in this lifestyle, with the practice of mindfulness and regular meditation, we can really look and see how craving is coming up. And you actually have a chance to really look at it and abandon it. <clears throat> not always give in to it. And this practice of mindfulness and restraint in all postures is geared to doing that. Gives you this ability to, you might say, to choose how to respond to different situations, how to respond to craving when it arises, whether you're gonna follow it or whether you're not. As you practice mindfulness, it's almost as if you start to have this more timeless quality, as the mind is more in line with the Dhamma, a sense of "Hmm, maybe I'll follow this, maybe I'll keep this in mind, or maybe not. It's that ability to start to work with your own mind, start to loosen up some of the stubbornness, some of the (coughs) firmly held beliefs and views and opinions that have been conditioning you for a long time. Now you actually have a chance to say no to things. Some things you say no to, some things you agree to. But there's more of mindfulness and wisdom guiding that, that process rather than just following the old habits of craving and attachment. the result of this is it starts to affect your whole being physically and mentally as you practice this lifestyle you keep the refinement of the patimoka you practice mindfulness you contemplate dukkha its cause and how to abandon the cause it changes your whole way of looking at the world looking at your experience Really, it changes your, it changes your world. (coughs) You might say in a technical way, it's changing your state of becoming, your bhava. If you keep establishing mindfulness and contemplating the process of dana, conditioning upadana, then you're also gonna be changing bhava, this state of becoming. The actual way your candors are manifesting, the way your mind is, the way you feel, the way you think, the way you create more karma is going to be changing. And this is why, <clears throat> especially in Thailand, you hear teachers talking about this a lot, t- talking about what they say in Thai is pop chart," means "bawa and jati, means the fruits of your all your karmic conditioning, whether good or bad. So if you've been following a lot of dunha upadana, then obviously your bawa, your state of becoming, <clears throat> the, the immediate cause for future birth, it might be quite unpleasant. If you keep falling into negative responses to your experience, you keep becoming sad or angry irritated about things well your state of becoming might be quite an unpleasant one say if somebody falls into a state of depression somebody who's consciously practicing to bring up sila put effort into their mindfulness practice well maybe their experience is much more uplifting they're learning to brighten their mind let go of different more negative mind states, so their whole bhava starts to change <clears throat> for the better. Sometimes as bhikkhus, even as we practice, we can still be creating more <clears throat> attachment to views and opinions about the practice and more states of becoming without realizing it. Ajahn Chah used to talk about sometimes like there was one monk who didn't like chanting. He started to feel that chanting was a waste of time. It interrupted his meditation. So Ajahn Chah said it's like that's become his realm of becoming for his mind. As soon as there's He's in a monastery where there's some kind of compulsory chanting meeting. Straight away he goes to negativity. There's no longer the ability to contemplate or have any kind of freedom from that karmic conditioning. It became so ingrained for him. He just became habitually averse to any kind of chanting that you could predict his behavior in different situations. If someone said, you've got to come to chanting he'd get grumpy. If he could get out of it he would. So he said it becomes actually becomes pop chart and becomes Bower cause of further birth. <coughs> the way it works is it becomes a very complete conditioning factor on the behaviour of someone. Just this one particular viewpoint. I don't like chanting chanting's not for me. It's not good. So at that moment maybe when somebody says you've got to come to chanting, aversion arises. So this painful feeling, this vipawadanha, this the stimulation of the various clinging to views and certain practices and the way the whole body and mind is at that moment is caught into suffering. Maybe they can see from the face, the face is irritated, unhappy because of the requirement to go to chanting, say obviously this is one very ordinary very particular example but you see this is how our minds work we're constantly getting stuck into different forms of clinging upadana based on our views our opinions our likes our dislikes obviously some people they say oh then you shouldn't have any attachment to any kind of views and opinions, no sense of self, you just kind of float around and whatever, doesn't matter. Well that Mm. sounds good but maybe that's not very practical either. Ajahn Chah said it's not wrong to hold an opinion about something just don't cling to it tightly with upadana. Mm. So you might have an opinion about aspects of the practice You learn what works for you, what's supportive, what you find more difficult, what hasn't worked for you, and so on. But if you're holding to an opinion, just hold lightly, you'd say. You'd say, hold it, but not firmly. Then if conditions change, information, fresh information comes up, or maybe you can adjust your opinion, and it doesn't become a cause of deep suffering to you. You know, this is my opinion at the moment, but you're also flexible enough that maybe it will change and you can be prepared for that. If you can hold to an opinion, but not tightly, then there'll be no conflict with others, no conflict within your own mind. There'll be no doubt, there'll be no stress or anxiety about your own opinions and views on things. You'll just know an opinion, a belief, a view as a belief or a view. And you know that it's. <coughs> it can change. It's impermanent. What's impermanent is not self. It's not really you. It's just a way the mind has developed certain knowledge, certain understanding, and maybe that will evolve, maybe that will change. And this is a subtle point, but as you meditate more, you understand the value of it and the importance of it. You see, all the conflict in the world comes from people developing a sense of self and forming various opinions, views, whether it's politics, religion, just a sense of self-preservation in society and so on. And this is how we suffer. As we meditate, we can see it in our own experience just you know, the, as we say, the bhava, the realm of the mind, the kamma bhava. You know, how your mind keeps responding, keeps thinking about certain things. If you're a very sensual person, the mind keeps returning to how can I get the things that I want. Whether it's people, you know, experiences, maybe sensuality with the opposite sex. <coughs> maybe material things, certain pleasant experiences. Maybe it evolves into something more, just the attachment to pity and sukkha that comes from meditation. Constantly saying, oh, how can I get more pity and sukkha? How can I hold on to this pity and sukkha that I've developed? And so on. We really have to keep investigating our own personal experience like this. The way the mind is operating, the way craving is giving rise to attachments, giving rise to bhava. And learn. You have to be honest and see if you can see the harm, the danger that's coming from a certain way of clinging, or be honest and say, "Hmm, this is something I have to start relinquishing, letting go of. You have to keep bringing up the mindfulness, being willing to do that, to come back and look at oneself. So a lot of the practice is quite tiring especially investigation of the truth it uses up energy We're having to deal with the movements of the mind you know, sometimes the mind is moving so much with emotion with passion that it's very difficult to keep track of it it's like herding cows or something just, they're so heavy and it's moving so fast it's very difficult to control them we have to <coughs> rely on a lot of patience then but even with patience and being unable to restrain the mind at least you can just keep watching and maybe you rely on your sealer that you're not going to let it spill out into your behaviour and you just keep watching different mental states and keep applying the Dhamma that you've heard, that you've learned. you can find that even the most Passionate rage or lustful state is still impermanent. You know, the, Buddha's, the truths that the Buddha pointed to are so profound, they're so directly pointing to reality that they, they can always be of use. And you notice how any mind state, eventually it changes, it passes. We don't have to take it as a permanent reality or believe in it. We can just watch it, watch it arise, watch it pass away. Obviously the <clears throat> aim in the end is to get to the point where this mind gets weary, as we chanted last night with the fire sermon, it gets weary of attaching and clinging and attaching to sense objects, desiring them and constantly suffering over them holding on trying to hold on to them fearing that we'll lose them trying to get more never satisfied with what we've got never content and gradually the mind gets weary of that process so little by little this cycle of patichca samuppada starts to you might say slow down or starts to become less intense as the mind gets weary of the worldly attachment Obviously, it's not just going to happen just like that. One would need a lot of bhara for it to happen in a very short space of time. But you might be able to see the weariness coming on, the weariness of following craving, the weariness of holding on to clinging and attachment. And that can give you some inspiration. You can see the the peace that comes with the mind that prefers just to know things without clinging. The understanding that <clears throat> one gets from the practice brings the mind to this state of peace, purity, or they say emptiness. If we keep practicing, and then that becomes more prominent into our state of mind. And the mind gets more used to returning to the state of peace and emptiness, watching things arise and pass away without getting involved with them. That's where that sense of aloofness or detached knowing becomes very established. So then even though we might still have to go through different painful experiences because of our past karma, the mind doesn't get worried by them, it doesn't get upset. It's not concerned about the world around what other people say and do so much. So it knows the important thing is just to maintain awareness and understanding. You keep practicing like that and that becomes more prominent and then you have more of a trust in your own practice. You're no longer reliant on just feeding mind through the books and listening to dhamma but you can actually see the dhamma practice the dhamma for yourself and what initially drops away is doubt you have no more doubt about the efficacy and the value of practice you know there's really nothing else to do even though it's not always easy even though we have our accumulated karma to work through, you know there's really nowhere else to go other than training the mind itself and turning inwards. Everything else is only going to be more disappointment, more of the same of what you've experienced before. Whereas the Dhamma that you understand is never disappointing. The true Dhamma is satisfying, enlightens the mind, Brings happiness, brings peace. So then, hopefully, the the practice itself draws you on, <clears throat> just like in the beginning, you're meeting teachers, reading the words of the Buddha is like the magnet that draws us into the practice. As you experience your your experience of the practice and the understanding of the Dhamma grows, then you have your own magnet drawing the mind on. It's no longer so reliant on external sources of inspiration. It can be happy for itself, within itself, more independent of the world. And also you have more appreciation then for other practitioners, for teachers, the sangha, the value of sangha, because you know this is what has led you to the point where you are in your practice. So generally, you get a lot of gratitude, mudita for other teachers, (coughs) those who have already attained the path and the fruit, and those who have practised before one, one tends to have a lot of respect and gratitude. So, tonight we have uh, a night of practice, and we'll be chanting the paritas at 11:30. So for the rest of the period, can sit and walk as you wish.